Hello, good evening, good day, everybody. Welcome to episode 135 of the Ask Abhijit Show. I hope you're all doing very well and thank you for being on the show. So, uh, before we get into the questions, let's see who all is there with us. And I can see Kushagra, Nikhil Singh, India Unleashed, Chiching, Mazar, Vladimir Protein, Tanishk, Vladimir Adityanath, Tanish, 2K World, Bhumika, Grave Walker, Pink Line Cabs, Amar, Sachin, Durga, Kishore, Vishal, Rai, bunch of random atoms, Mr. Giga Chad of India, Twilight, Learning Milestone, AP Singh Rathor, Dr. AP Singh Rathor, Anant Goel, Rita, Vaibhav, Hindu Sher Putin, AUC, Darmil, Kasta, Jeevana, Hamburger Baby, Jasmine, Nirmit, Anurag, Anant, Crazy Brain, Pankaj, Onkar, Ayush, Akai, Manish, R242, Brian Steller, Chaitanya, Ritwik, Utkarsh, and a whole lot of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. Some more. Sfurti, Nitin, Vaibhav, Shodit, PS, Auspicious, Doomday, Doomsday, Dairya, Keshav, Abhay, Vishwanath, Utkarsh, OVVS, Yuri Bejmenov is here, Abotani, Shashank, Himanshu, Trip Extreme, the oldie 98 years, Vihari, Sriram, and lots of other people. Great to have you all tonight with me on this latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. So, today we will deal with geopolitics and history and current affairs. So, let's see what questions await us. As always, you all have asked lots of questions. And, uh, okay, let, let me take this question first, just to, uh, just for the benefit of the newer audience. So, this is by Vinoop. Uh, you have a very good Italian accent. I live in the Caribbean. I'm Indian by birth and so on. I, I'm at work and I cannot join live. Uh, how can I ask my question? I did ask a few questions with the hashtag AskAbjitJit, but I did not hear from you. What's the right way to get my question to you? Okay, I think many people may have this question. How do you ask questions? Go to any video on my channel or go to the community page. And there are lots of community posts there. Ask your question over there and use the hashtag. This hashtag. Do you see this hashtag? Ask Abhijit. Uh, let me put that over here. Can you see this hashtag here? This one here. This one. That's the hashtag you have to use. It's in two forms with the capitals and without the capitals. Use this hashtag. Not both. Anyone. And please use the correct spelling with your question. Uh, the the spelling used over here is slightly incorrect. Ask Abjijit. And the hashtag has to be attached to the Ask Abhijit, not separate with a space in between. So if you do that, I'll be able to pick up your questions. I cannot read the thousands of comments that come in every week, but I try to read all the all the comments that have this hashtag uh, incorporated in them. You do that, you will hopefully get... Um, uh, I'll hopefully see that and I'll be able to possibly answer your question. Now, yeah, lots of people ask questions and their questions are not picked up. I apologize for that. There are thousands of questions that come in every week. Some people email me saying, I'm I'm very, um, I'm, I'm very upset with you and I'm very disappointed with you. You did not pick my question. Please understand, thousands of people are question, asking questions every week. I can only pick a few. You want to, me to pick your question, ask the best possible question you have. You ask me the same question I've answered lots of times before. I will not pick it up most likely. I have more than a thousand videos on my channel. Do a search on my channel for the question that you have and most likely it may already have been answered. So if you do that, you'll be able to ask me questions. All right, let's now get into the real questions. 
okay yes uh this is something we spoke about earlier but yeah it's it's worth uh taking this again raghav says why did the us help pakistan in maintenance of f16 aircraft fighter fighter jets and announce a packet of, pa- package of 450 million dollars on the other hand sharif met putin at the sco summit this week and asked for cheap gas pipeline directly into pakistan aryan says us is providing upgradation of the f16 fleet at the same time it also wants to sell india apaches fa18 fighter jets reaper drones their defense uh, minister uh, yeah told our defense minister they'll provide new technologies to india against china why are they playing both the sides and uh, shivam says us signed a contract with f16 and all that to make them capable to jam enemy aircraft with new generation software is this not hypocrisy of the india or are they playing the pakistan card with india yeah okay good good questions first of all the americans always accuse indian uh, commentators journalists diplomats etc in government of having a cold war mentality this pakistan card they have played is nothing but uh, straight out of the cold war uh, playbook they used to arm pakistan finance pakistan fund pakistan in the 1980s 1990s etc during the cold war 70s 60s also right the americans did that constantly for decades and they financed pakistani terrorism in india the americans did that so this action of theirs of of uh, offering this 450 million dollar upgrade package to the pakistanis for their f16 fighter planes it's straight after out of the cold war playbook yeah so first of all the the uh, when, when they accuse indians of uh, having a cold war mentality they are actually playing from the cold war playbook that's what they're doing so uh, th- that's point number 1 now what else is there uh they want to sell india various uh weapons systems apache aircraft fa18 fighter planes yes and so on and so forth uh they want to help india against china yeah so on the other hand they are helping pakistan so are they not playing both the sides of course they are playing both the sides the americans do not want india to rise too much they want india to be at the same level of strength and power and ability as it is today india's economy is what 3.6 billion dollars something like that uh, that's, that's the gdp yeah 3.6 trillion sorry trillion so that's the kind of uh, gdp strength that india has today 3.53 trillion dollars in the us doesn't want india to rise much beyond this they want india to remain a middle power not a very strong power and they want to utilize this whatever capability india has today as a counterweight against china in order to prevent china's rise further but they don't want india to become the next china that's the worst case scenario for them so they will help pakistan in order to counterbalance india and they will offer india weapons packages and so on and so forth various kinds of things in order to counterbalance china so india is a counterbalance to china and pakistan is a counterbalance to india that's the game they are playing yeah so is this hypocrisy no this is real politics that's what they always do they have no friends they don't believe in having any friends even when it comes to their relations with the uk with new zealand with australia with canada they treat these nations the g5 nations uh the five i not g5 the five eyes alliance they treat all the other english speaking nations as vassal states and uh, who are expected to to the line and do what they are told and uh, so that's the deal with them they they don't believe in having any friendship with anybody they simply want to be the number one top dog in the world and they will do anything to uh, to maintain 
this position that they have so they are using pakistan to offset india to counterbalance india and to make sure that india doesn't uh, feel too comfortable and uh, some of them say some uh, western diplomats some western journalists say that this is nothing but a routine aid package it is not aimed against india it is for like somebody said here it's it's uh, to help pakistan in its anti terrorism measures have the pakistanis ever used the f16s and their fighter planes to fight terrorists no everybody knows what the f16s are intended for they are used they are intended to be used against india everyone knows this the americans also know that right and this obviously is in response to india's multi alignment to india's uh, multi alignment uh, diplomacy multipolar world uh, diplomacy india is aligning with all like minded nations yeah india is not going straight into the us camp and doing whatever they are telling us to do india is aligning itself with france india is aligning itself with japan in whatever way india is aligning itself is india is cooperating fully with russia when it comes to the development of india with, with buying oil all those things the americans are deeply dissatisfied with that they want india to do exactly what we tell uh, what they tell india to do and india should cut off all relations with, uh, with russia and so on that's what they want and india is also participating in the vostok uh, is going to participate in the vostok uh, military exercises with russia in the far east so in response to india not doing what the americans tell india to do they are doing these things now look at this look at it this way when india cooperates with russia in a variety of means it is for the sake of strengthening india's uh, national self self defense capabilities right it is not whatever cooperation india is doing with russia it does not harm us national security in any way whatsoever it is simply to enhance india's national security vis-a-vis -vis china and pakistan yes whatever india is doing with russia and other nations it's only for self defense purposes it's for strengthening india's national self defense capabilities it does not harm us national interests in any way whatsoever it doesn't pose any threat to american uh, defense but when the americans aid pakistan it directly threatens india's national interest and national defense capabilities right they are strengthening india's number 2 enemy in a way that will make it easier for pakistan to hurt india if there is a war so the americans are directly aiding india's number 2 enemy against india and india is doing nothing to aid any of america's enemies in any way that infringes upon the us national interest right so that is the kind of asymmetry that we are seeing now right now the americans are perfectly happy to see india bleed again in the future and they are ensuring that pakistan will be in a position to do that in the future that's what the americans are ensuring are ensuring this is a hostile act against india this is in this is essentially enemy action against india so please understand where the us stands vis-a-vis -vis india it's no friend of india it's no friend of anybody i we can understand why they're doing it but understanding doesn't mean that it's right and understanding why they're doing it doesn't mean that it is good for us right so uh, that is the deal so they also want to sell india apache uh, 
attack helicopters, FA-18 fighter planes, Reaper drones, whatever else. But they will extract a big price for that. Obviously, it will not be cheap. It will cost a lot of money. Whatever aid, you know, they call everything aid. We are aiding Taiwan. No, you're not aiding Taiwan. You're selling stuff to Taiwan and Taiwan is giving you money in exchange for that. It's not aid. So they they construe everything as aid. It's not aid. They are selling stuff. Every time there's a war, it benefits the U.S. financially, commercially. It benefits the various, uh, the Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin and whatever other defense companies. They have Raytheon, uh, General Atomics, all these American defense companies, which are weapons manufacturers. It helps them immensely. It benefits them immensely. It uh, so so that's why wars are profitable for the U.S. That's what they discovered during World War II. We made a lot of money out of it. So let's keep wars going. Uh, so that's what they are doing. Uh, the Amer American action in aiding Pakistan is enemy action against India. It's a hostile act against India, and they are trying to say that you know it's it's just a routine thing, which is not which it is not. They are greatly miffed by what India is doing. India is not aligning itself with the US completely. In, uh, India is refusing to be told what India should do. India is pursuing an, com a completely independent foreign policy, which the Americans hate. They hate the same thing about, about France as well. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that's, the, that's what's happening. India is also not cooperating with the US when it comes to the indo Pacific uh, Economic, uh, whatever it is, uh, that that new uh, organization, the organization they've created, India has pulled out of out of pulled out of the trade pillar of the new organization, and so on. So yes, there is significant friction between India and the United States, and the latest action of the U.S. is nothing short of being enemy action against India. When I strengthen your enemy, and I I upgrade your enemies weapons, I am essentially saying that I am also your enemy, right? That's how it works. So that's what the Americans have done. So we are witnessing a deterioration of India-US relations, for sure. And I'm, uh, I I believe I read this, that the Indian Defense Minister, Mr. Rajnath Singh, did speak with his American counterpart and, and made it very clear that what you're doing is, is, uh, is something that we uh, are greatly displeased with this is nothing i mean I, i'm not say, i don't know what exact words we used but yes the displeasure has been conveyed very clearly and very strongly to the americans and obviously this is going to impact future india us relations they want us to buy more weapons from them it's going to be hard for them to convince us to do that the fa18 i think they should forget about it yeah so uh, we will be open to cooperation with the U.S. only when it concerns and and it is concerned with our national security and national and our self-interest. You're gonna help us. We're gonna take your help, but don't expect any freebies <laughs> and don't expect any warmth in the relationship. That's the that's the thing I would, is gonna go. So it's gonna be a transactional relationship. The previous U.S. president was a transactional president, Mr. Trump. Everything was transactional. So India also, I sub I expect will go in the same direction as the U.S. And uh, we will cooperate fully when it comes to economic uh, cooperation. But when it comes to national security cooperation and strategic cooperation, it's going to be issue-based cooperation. We will examine each issue on its merits from our perspective. And if it benefits us, then we will go ahead with that. Otherwise, we will reject it. And that's what India is doing. That's what I call the Jayashankar Doctrine. I have a video on that. And I've laid out all the points in that. So what we are seeing is that the Jayashankar Doctrine in in action right 
so I think that's uh, about the questions. And when it comes to Sharif meeting Putin and asking for gas, you know, the fact that America, the US is selling this weapons upgrade package, the F-16 upgrade package to Pakistan, doesn't mean that the relations are now good between the US and Pakistan. The Americans no longer have much use for Pakistan. Pakistan was valuable to, for them when they were occupying Afghanistan. They had invaded and occupied Afghanistan. They had placed a puppet regime in place, puppet government. First, it was uh, Karzai, and then it was Ashraf Ghani. These were puppet leaders of Afghanistan put in place by the US. And they were conducting various operations in, in Afghanistan, military operations and so on. They needed Pakistan as a staging base for that. And they needed, they needed uh, access to the Indian Ocean via Pakistan. That's why Pakistan was valuable to them. Now that they have withdrawn from from Afghanistan and they no longer have much of a presence in Central Asia, Pakistan is worthless to them. Yeah, But they have reopened the Pakistan playbook in order to needle India and in order to threaten India. And that's what they've done. So the Pakistanis know that, know that America has not suddenly overnight become a friend again. Their big daddy is still China. Yeah, And Russia unfortunately needs China for now. Russia still needs uh, Chinese assistance. The Chinese also need Russia in order to play their games, their geopolitical games, and to further their geopolitical interests vis-a-vis -vis the US, their ambitions of becoming the number one superpower in the world. So for that, they also temporarily need Russia. So Russia and China temporarily need each other. Long term, if you look at it long term, they are going to be adversaries and enemies. But right now, they are cooperating. So that's how the Pakistan, China, Russia thing is working. Mr. Putin is also playing the game. Yes. So yeah, he had a meeting with uh, whoever the latest Pakistani prime minister is. And I'm sure Sharif, right? The, the younger brother, Sharif brother. So yeah, he must have uh, asked Mr. Putin for whatever aid he wants. some Maybe some loans, maybe some oil, gas, whatever. Cheap. Yes, cheap is the word. So yeah, that's going on. So they still, the Pakistanis know that their big daddy is China and, and to some extent Russia because of the association with, with China. The US is not uh, Pakistan's big daddy anymore. This is just a one-off action and maybe it will be continued. Maybe the sort of aid packages that the Americans uh, have given once to, China, to Pakistan, it may happen again if India refuses to keeps refusing to play by America's playbook and which is going to happen. So let's see. It's, it's, it's interesting times ahead. You know, interesting times ahead. The Americans are again opening the Cold War playbook. They're again bringing in the Pakistan factor uh, as, as a stick to beat India with. Let's see how far they can carry this. I am sure, I can assure you, there will be consequences to this. The Americans will not be able to get their way with India and make India do what they want. So we are now witnessing a multi-pronged tussle. The Americans need India against China, but they are deeply unhappy with India's independent foreign policy. They are trying to arm twist India into coming on their side. India is going to refuse that. India is not going to become a U.S. vassal state by any means whatsoever. And there's the Pakistan angle, the China angle, the Russia angle. It's it's complicated, right? We are entering a complicated uh, period of time in world geopolitics when everything is in flux. So that is the situation currently. And we will keep an eye on this, on this program. Okay, Utkarsh says, why did Malaysia deny buying Indian HAL Tejas fighter planes and went for the Korean KAI T-50 Golden Eagle? Do you think the US had a hand behind this deal? Because the T-50 jets are a joint venture between Korean Aerospace and Lockheed Martin, the, the American company. Good question. So, uh, 
I'm not sure if it's been officially announced or not that the Koreans have gone for, I mean, I mean the, the Malaysians have gone for the Korean jet, but it is possible that they will go for the Korean jet. So there were a number of planes in the fray, number of fighter planes that they were considering. Uh, there's a Turkish lightweight fighter plane, I forget the name, Hurjet, I think it's called the Hurjet, H-U-R-J-E-T, Hurjet. It's a Turkish fighter plane that is still currently under development. That was in the fray. The China Pakistani, the Chinese Pakistani JF-17 thing was also in the fray. Uh, what else was there? Uh, I think the MiG-35, one of the MiG, MiG fighter planes, either 29 or 35, most likely 35 was also in the fray. The Tejas was there and the Korean Golden Eagle was also in the fray. And the, the top three that they had selected was, were the Turkish fighter plane, I think, and the Korean plane and the Indian plane. And the top two were the Korean plane and the Indian plane. And now, anytime, I suppose they will make a decision or I'm not sure if it's been announced thus far. But it looks like, I mean, that's what the media is speculating, that maybe they will go for the Golden Eagle, the Korean fighter plane, which is a light fighter plane, which is a derivative, an advanced derivative of the F-16 fight, uh, Fighting Falcon, the 1970s American plane, which they are also trying to offer to India. Yeah, so uh, it's possible that the Malaysians will go for the Korean plane. The thing is, the Korean plane is much cheaper than the Indian fighter plane. Out of all these aircraft, the Indian fighter plane, the, the Tejas, was the most expensive. I think the unit price was about 35, 40, approximately 40 million dollars per piece, which is quite expensive for the size. It's because the, the Indian fighter plane has the most capability, the most advanced capabilities and the best weapon systems and all that. And the India was offering much more. They were India was offering the Malaysians uh, access, I mean, some kind of uh, upgrades to their Sukhoi fighter planes as well. They also have a variant of the Sukhoi MK-30 fighter plane. So India was offering assistance in uh, spares and maintenance of that as well. It was a package deal India was offering, but maybe they will go for the Korean Golden Eagle. It's a possibility, maybe even a likelihood. I'm not sure if it's been in announced. So if this indeed happens, that the Malaysians go for the Korean jet, which is not as capable as the, as the Tejas, then is the US behind that? Well, like you mentioned, Utkarsh, you are right that uh, the uh, American company Lockheed Martin is indeed uh, uh, one of the one of the companies that was involved in the development of this T-50 fighter jet along with uh, Korean, the, the Korean company. I think uh, Lockheed Martin has a 13 or 15 percent stake in the development. And I think, I believe the radar and uh, the radar is developed by Lockheed Martin, some other avionics and some other components may be also developed by Lockheed Martin. Uh, I also I think it's also got a general electric uh, jet engine. Yes. So many of the components come from the US and uh, yes. And as we know, and, and unless you don't, well, we should know this. South Korea is a US vassal state. South Korea has been under permanent U.S. occupation since the 1950s, since the end of the Korean War, since the, since the Korean War started, essentially. right? The U.S. has had a permanent presence in South Korea since that time. So uh, it's it's therefore not surprising if the U.S. had some say in this. Yeah. So, uh, of course, nothing has officially been announced that the Americans aren't with the the Malaysians into this or whatever. But yes, if, if the, the Malaysians buy the Korean fighter plane, then the US will benefit, Lockheed Martin will benefit, and overall India will, it will, India will not benefit, right? If they acquire 20 or 30 
Tejas fighter planes, it's going to be good for the Indian economy, for the Indian uh, uh, defense manufacturing ecosystem and all that. So maybe they don't want this to happen. And they want the benefit instead to go to Korea and the US. So it is certainly a possibility. If they are behind this, they will certainly not announce that. These things are always kept under wraps and the game is played in the shadows, right? The game of influence, the game of geopolitics. So it is certainly a possibility. If the Malaysians go with the KAI T-50 Golden Eagle, then it is, I would say, quite likely that at least a certain amount, a percentage of the decision um, was influenced by the US. And, you know, the, here's the thing. This Golden Eagle... It's been flying, I think, since 2012 or something, about a decade. And from 2012, I'm not sure, maybe before 2012, I'm not really sure. But from 2012 until 2022, this year, there have been six crashes of this aircraft. Right? So it's not got a very good record. It's got a patchy record. Six crashes in 10 years is not a small amount. I think the total number that has been built thus far is about 200, out of which six have crashed, about 3% crash rate, which is not a very encouraging sign. Yeah, so that's also there. And the Malaysians, if they go for it, they are, they know that they are purchasing an aircraft that, that has this sort of track record. So, uh, yeah, let's see how it goes. It is possible they may go for this aircraft. And in that case, definitely there would be an American hand to some extent behind this. Gopi says, why did Modi ji say that today is not an era of war to President Putin? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let me put something on the screen. What has the media been saying, being saying about this? What has the media been saying about this? So, yeah, uh, this week you had the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization, SEO's summit in Samarkand, Uzbekistan. And uh, Mr. Modi did meet Mr. Putin, a bilateral meeting on the sidelines of the of the summit. So here's what uh, Sri Ian Bremer G has to say. Mr. Ian Bremer is uh, a political scientist. Yeah, he's a political scientist, and he's got a big following on on Twitter. So he says that Modi putting Putin on notice. India wants the Ukraine war to end. A disastrous. Shanghai Cooperation Summit for the Russian dictator. Oh my goodness, what a disaster, according to Sri Ian Bremerji. What else? Here's what Reuters has to say. Reuters, what's, oh yes, India's Modi assails Putin over the Ukraine war. Mamma mia, what a terrible, terrible thing to happen. Do they look like they, does Mr. Modi look like he is about to assail Mr. Putin? <laughs> Anyhow, that's what uh, the media is saying. I'm, I'm, when I say media, I mean the Western media. So what really happened is the question, right? This is what the media has been saying. I've just given you a sample of that, uh, a taste of that, a flavor of that, of what the Western media is saying. Maybe the Indian media may also be towing this line. If you look at various big India media organizations, they essentially tow the Western line. Whether it is on TV, whether it's on on the internet, whether it is in print or whatever, they typically tow the Western line. Your favorite newsreader, whoever he or she is, typically <laughs> tows the Western line. So what happened? So we had this bilateral meeting between Mr. Modi, Mr. Putin, on the sidelines of the SEO summit. And Mr. Modi did say that during this meeting, um, that the modern era is not the era of war. He said that. What does it mean? It's a general statement. 
it does not target or or, or it is not pointed at any individual or any, or any nation he said he made the general statement that the modern era is not the era of war and he exchanged the customary diplomatic greetings with shri putin ji and there was a general statement and general statements for dialogue for diplomacy including this this statement that the modern era is not the era for war right mr modi did not specify the ukraine conflict he just said the era of war and he also did not even if with with the reference to the ukraine conflict he did not specify who instigated the conflict and prompted the war the entire universe known universe and all the sentient beings in the known universe know that there was a maidan coup it was a color revolution instigated by the united states the us has perfected the art of instigating these color revolutions again and again and again iteratively so the maidan revolution was an undemocratic coup against the constitutionally elected government it was an unconstitutional undemocratic coup orchestrated by the us we know that so you had the maidan coup then you also have the long term steady expansion of nato eastwards in contravention of every single agreement and all of the agreement they had with the erstwhile ussr and, the, and, and with russia and we also have the ongoing long term decade plus long western training and support of ukrainian politicians and later on after the maidan coup of the ukrainian neo nazis yes all these things triggered the ukraine conflict so mr modi did not mention who instigated the conflict and prompted the war and he certainly did not play point any fingers at either mr putin or at russia right so he just made some general statements for the sake of diplomacy these are the typical diplomatic statements that you have in the uh, that you have when two leaders meet in front of the cameras and then there was a closed door meeting with the, where there were no journalists and no cameras and after the closed door meeting mr modi spoke about the unbreakable friendship between india and russia and he also said that mr modi that that mr modi and mr putin putin their closed door meeting was wonderful so where does mr modi assail mr putin in any of this take a look again what is this nonsense mr that india's modi assails putin there was no uh, no assault nothing of the sort this is a complete fabrication they are twisting facts to suit their narratives and agendas and once again if it ever loads shri ian bremer ji what he said yeah this here modi putting putin on notice what nonsense he's making things up to suit his agenda so that's what you typically see these days you see it's all about furthering your agenda the truth is not important there is no such thing as truth in journalism that's why people call this the post truth era the truth no longer matters it's only propaganda and perceptions that matter and you can create an avalanche of propaganda and people will start believing anything so that is where we are today all right so there was no such thing uh, mr modi just made a simple state standard diplomatic statement that the current era the modern era is not the era for war which which is just a general statement and he is not laying the blame on mr putin or on russia kalyan says india is going to take the leadership of the seo in the upcoming 12 months and the seo summit is already started today i mean this must be like a couple of days ago and pm modi ji is going on friday will the president of china interact with modi ji after galwan summit galwan valley incident or vice versa with modi ji so the the uh, summit is already over 
uh, it was Thursday, Friday. Today is Sunday. Uh, I believe Mr. Modi must be back home now, back back in India. So, what happened during the summit? Mr. Modi had multiple bilateral meetings with various leaders. He met met as we discussed, uh, Shri Vladimir Putin ji. Uh, Mr. Modi also met the president of Turkey, Sri Recep Tayyip Erdogan ji, the great um, great friend of Mr. Modi. He also met Uzbekistan's leader, Shavkat Mirzoyev, and he also met Iran's leader, Ibrahim Raisi. So he had at least four bilateral meetings and uh, there was no meeting with Mr. Xi Jinping. There was no bilateral meeting with Mr. Xi Jinping. As far as I know, there was no handshake between Mr. Modi and Mr. Xi Jinping. There was no hello. There was no smile. Nothing. They did stand next to each other in the group photograph once. And they stood apart also in a different group photograph. So it's clear that there were no pleasantries, no greetings, no handshakes, no smiles, nothing between the leaders of India and China. Nothing at all. You can see the tensions are very clear, very apparent. The vibe, the vibe is very cold. Yes. I mean, Mr. Modi even met Mr. Erdogan with uh, India and Turkey don't have the warmest of relationships at the best of times. And yet Mr. Modi had a very you know, pleasant and warm meeting with Mr. Erdogan. But no such thing was there with, with Mr. Xi Jinping. So yes, we are currently going through a period of turmoil in India-China relations. The relations are very tense. They are quite hostile. The two leaders did not even smile at each other. They did not even say a simple hello. So yes, that is the situation. That tells you everything you need to know. And of course, Mr. Modi did not meet with the Pakistani, the latest temporary prime minister, whoever it is. Uh, And there was no need for that. Because the Pakistani Prime Minister does not really have any power in Pakistan. We know that, right? It's, it's just a, he's just a figurehead, a puppet, sock puppet. The hand in the sock puppet, <laughs> behind the sock puppet, is that of the army. So yes, that is the situation. No talks between Mr. Modi and Mr. Xi Jinping. No agreement, no nothing. The relationship is just as cold and uh, hostile as it has been. So this was the first time they met in two, three years, I would say. And it was hardly a meeting at all. They just stood next to each other, did not look at each other, no eye contact, nothing. So yes, that tells you everything you need to know about the relations currently between India and China. Harsh says, your view on the Chinese response to the SCO summit. Xi Jinping, China's leader, said that he will support India's presidency. It's just another standard diplomatic statement. See, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, it has a rotating presidency. Yeah, the presidency rotates every year. There are how many, like six, seven, whatever members, six, seven, eight. The membership increases from time to time. Five, six, seven. I think there are eight members right now, if I'm not mistaken, maybe more, maybe less. I think eight or nine, eight, I think. So these eight, and and there are a bunch of observer Uh, Certain countries have observer status and so on and so forth. There's there's typically a number of people there, but the core group is is about eight people. The first five, plus India and Pakistan, plus Iran, which was inducted this year. So that should be eight. Yeah, you can look it up if you want to. So there is a rotating presidency. Every year, a new nation becomes president for one year. So at the end of the Samarkand summit, which happened this week, India became the president. India assume the presidency of the grouping and this will last for one year until 
late 2023 maybe we are september right now so most likely until september 2023 and as a consequence of this next year there's going to be a summit there's a summit every year so next year's summit will be held in india at a place of in india's choosing maybe delhi maybe somewhere else mr modi will and the government of india will decide so that's a simple thing and this is something that is just a matter of course there is nothing special as, uh, associated with being the president it's a, it's a ceremonial kind of thing you don't have any special decision making powers or any such thing it's just a routine thing the transfer of the of the rotating presidency year after year from one nation to another so right now it's india's turn and india will host the next summit and mr xi jinping made the standard diplomatic statement that yes we support india's presidency blah 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 that's it it means nothing it doesn't mean any thawing of the ties and any friendly relations between india and china it means nothing of the sort it's just a standard diplomatic statement and it's a routine occurrence in the sco uh, pranav says if you had a chance to advise modi ji or mr s dr s jay shankar regarding their foreign policy with the us in european countries which kind of has gone downhill since we did not align ourselves with them on ukraine versus russia matter what would my advice be okay first of all who am i to advise the prime minister and the foreign minister of india they understand diplomacy and geopolitics and international relations far better than me they are experienced in this they have been doing this for a very long time so first of all see the thing is this many people who prognosticate about geopolitics who speak about geopolitics many of them become too big for their boots and they start thinking they can advise everybody there are various news channels and youtube channels that every day say that mr modi has got his foreign policy wrong and dr jayashankar is doing the wrong thing or somebody else in the government is is too big for his or her boots or whatever and they they portray themselves as having all the answers and being in a position to prognosticate and, ad- and advise the government and show what is the right way as opposed to what the what the indian government is doing right i think that that reeks of arrogance yes i am very clear that i am simply an observer and i am in, i am nobody to give any advice to the indian government especially to people as as experienced and as great as mr modi and dr jayashankar and yeah what i would say if i have to say anything is that they are doing exactly the right thing the indian foreign policy is on the right track it is the correct foreign policy what i have called the jayashankar doctrine is essentially an extension of the modi doctrine what is being done by the indian government is what is needed vis-a-vis india's national interest long term national interest india is pursuing an independent foreign policy india is not going on its knees in front of any major power whether it is china or whether it is the us india is not allowing itself to be arm twisted in international relations in geopolitics and all that and it is an admirable foreign policy there are certain compulsions that we have because we are not a superpower india is still a middle power india still needs the cooperation of lots of nations including the us including china as well in some cases for its growth for its long term growth india is currently walking or doing a tight rope walk walk india has to anyhow ensure that it reaches the 10 trillion dollar mark of its economy without any major mishaps like going to war with somebody so india needs to balance its its international policy and thus far it's doing a very good job so all i would say is that the 
foreign policy that India is pursuing is an excellent foreign policy. It is for the first time I'm happy to see in Indian, Indian government's foreign policy. And it needs to continue, continue this way, despite all the provocations and despite all the pressure that comes in from various sides, whether it is from the Chinese side, whether it's from the American side, whether it is from NATO, from Europe or whoever else, India needs to stay the course. And the only objective is to further India's long-term national interest. That's the deal. So we are, we are on the, very much on the right track. Ritesh Goel says, recently the French foreign minister came on a three-day visit to India and she said that she's here to offer a no-limits partnership to India. She also said that France would like to be a defense partner rather than a defense hardware supplier. How would the US react to this given that France and the US are NATO allies? Does it mean that, that France will help India with nuclear attack submarines? Is it something like that the is it like something the that the Russians and Chinese have? Okay, uh, yes, the French foreign minister recently came to India and she met with Mr. Modi, most likely with the, with Mr. Rajnath Singh as well, and maybe some other important Indian officials. And yes, she did limit what she calls she did offer what she calls a no limits partnership to India. And France would like to be a defense partner rather than a defense supplier. What does it mean? It means that France is open to transferring certain technologies to India at the right price. See, there is there are no freebies and gifts in geopolitics. Every nation will do, will will pursue its own national interest, its its self interest first. Now, when your national interest, when the national interests of two nations align, then they can certainly cooperate in a mutually beneficial manner. So France is always under pressure from the U.S. The French, uh, the French had a deal with Australia, wherein they were uh, supposed to sell a number of submarines to Australia. Scorpion submarines, I believe. A certain variant of the Scorpion submarines. I think it's, it was Scorpions, yes. And the, the deal was signed. It was finalized. It was on its way. And then the Australians pulled out of it because they were arm twisted by the Americans. And now they are going to purchase very expensive American nuclear submarines. Uh, about, uh, and they will acquire them about 20 years or so from now. It's a long-term deal. So for the next 15-20 years, they will have nothing. The Americans arm twisted the Australians into pulling out of a deal they had signed and finalized with France. Yeah. So obviously the French are very upset about this. Yes. France is the only nation in Western Europe and the only nation in the European Union and the only nation in NATO that has a quasi-independent foreign policy. Yeah. They are not truly vassal states of the US, unlike all the other Western European nations. The French are not vassal states. They have a quasi-independent, a reasonably independent foreign policy. They still are indeed towing the US line on Ukraine and all that because they have compulsions. But as far as possible, they want to have an independent foreign policy. And they are very proud of being separate from the Anglosphere, from the Anglo-Saxon Empire, and being a distinct uh, culture and civilization. That's what they are proud of. I mean, it's a thousand-year-old civilization, but let's give, let's give them that. So... The French would very much like to cooperate with India as long as it benefits them as well. So India does need, India does want various technologies. Jet engine technology is something India very much wants ASAP as soon as possible. The French have that. They have this company called Snigma, Safran, whatever. And they have expressed a willingness to transfer jet engine technology to India and help the Kaveri project and, and make it, you know, reach its logical conclusion. But in exchange for that, they will obviously want money and not small amounts of money. So that's the deal. So they are, see, most nations will offer you hardware. 
but they will not offer you the know-how, the technology, the understanding. Let's see. Let's say the uh, French have built six scorpion submarines for India. The submarines were built in India, in Indian dockyards. So tomorrow, India can build more of those submarines with the same hull characteristics and all that. But certain things will not be shared with India. The acoustic signatures and the the air independent propulsion, if there is any, and various other technologies that are very hard to develop. Yeah, India can make the same hull of a submarine, but inside, I mean, the the various technologies that that go inside will not be shared. So, uh, so the French are willing to share some technologies at the right price. Obviously, the price will be high. Jet engine technology, perhaps, maybe submarine technology, maybe something else. So what the lady is essentially saying is that France is open to negotiate. And France will, at the right price, transfer certain technologies or maybe many technologies. But India will have to be very careful to ensure that for that price, we get the entire technology and technology and something should not be left out. So it's it's something that will that needs careful appraisal. But the good thing is that they are willing to play ball. Yes. And India and France have good relations, have had good relations for a significantly long time. The French even offered India, I believe, um, which aircraft was it? What was it? The Mirage. The Mirage 2000. They had offered to transfer the entire Mirage 2000 factory to India and let India build 200 or as many jets as India wanted. This is in the late 1990s. And the governments at the time were coalition governments and temporary governments. So this deal never happened. The entire jet engine problem, the, 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 the jet fighter problem would have been resolved right there. Yeah. So India lost a huge a golden opportunity at that time. So the French have always been willing to cooperate with India in a variety of in a, in a variety of ways. When India tested nuclear weapons in 1998, the French were the only Western nation not to condemn India. So India and France have a good understanding. India and France have good relations. The, the leaders of India and France have very good, warm, friendly, personal relations. This partnership, this relationship can certainly go forward, but India will obviously have to pay a hefty price for any technology that it acquires from France. So that is where we are vis-a-vis -vis India and France. There is a lot of potential in this relationship. And France has a big uh, geopolitical angle in the Indian Ocean region. France is a major Indian Ocean power, naval power, in case you don't know. Let me show you the map. Ah, we haven't had the map today. So let's go to the map. Where is the map? Where is the map? Let's bring in the map. Here's the map. Here is the map. Check it out. This is the huge, vast expanse of real estate, maritime real estate, called the Indian Ocean region. It essentially is uh, something that India considers to be a strategic backyard. Now, why do I say France is an Indian Ocean maritime power? Because it has something called uh, where is it? Yes, this island called Réunion, it belongs to France. France uh, possesses this island. Uh, Mauritius used to be a French possession. Port Maturin, I believe, belongs to France, if I'm not mistaken. And there are various uh, islands south of this territory that could see the French southern and Antarctic lands and so on that belong to France. Even the Seychelles have a history of... Uh, French involvement. Here are the Seychelles over here. Yeah, all the names in this in this uh, archipelago are French names. Uh, 
and so on. So France still has possessions in the Indian Ocean. It is a, a region that is of great interest to France. And the French Navy does have a, have a presence in various parts of the Indian Ocean. And as a, as a consequence, there is cooperation between India and France in various naval and maritime and military matters. And that's where India and France have common interests in keeping this region free of unfriendly actors, which essentially means China to a large extent and to a lesser extent certain, certain other nations that India and France don't have very good relations with. We can keep that up to your imagination. right? So that's the deal between India and France. All right, a whole lot of questions. Uh, so yeah, I got a lot of questions for about, about this matter. So I'm putting a few of these to represent those. Bhumika says India will spend uh, 7, 75,000 crores on the great Andaman and Nicobar Island. The great Nicobar Island, are environmentalist con concerns justified? Is it, going to, is it not going to impact the Aboriginal tribes? Why is it important for, for us from a strategic point of view? The GOI has approved 75,000 crore worth of projects in the Great Nicobar Island. How does this counter China's string of pearl strategy and so on? Webov says the same thing. Environmentalists are raising concerns that 8 lakh trees are going to be cut. Srijesh says transshipment port to India. How important is it? Will this be a game changer for the Indian economy? And so on. Lots of questions about this particular matter. So let us discuss this. First of all, where is it? Where is the Great Nicobar Island? Where is this island? Let's go to the map once again. And the Great Nicobar Island. Where is it? That's the Andamans. These are the Nicobars. And this is the Great Nicobar Island. This one here. So this essentially is the island that represents the southernmost point of India. The Great Nicobar Island. And India has approved, the government of India has approved a, a big Massive project worth, I think, $9.4 billion in today's money, which is 75,000 crore rupees. And it's going to be a game changer. And we, uh, the Indian government has already uh, constructed, I believe, a high-speed fiber optic cable between Chennai, I believe, and uh, this island, this entire region. Uh, you will have high-speed internet now onwards, starting very soon, I believe. Uh, in the Andaman Nicobar Islands. I think in Port Blair, you will have a speed of 400 Gbps. In other parts of the archipelago, you will have a speed of 200 Gbps, which is good, and so on. That's what we hear. But that is not the main thing. The main thing is the big investment that's coming in. Yeah. So what is going to be built? A massive port will be built. Yeah. Uh, there will be a township or a small city or town will be built. And obviously a power generating station. And this will be a transshipment port that will be able to uh, handle vast amounts, vast amounts of cargo. It, will it have a military dimension? Well, nothing has been announced, but you can never rule that out, obviously, because this is the southernmost point of the region. It is at the very mouth of the very strategically important Malacca Strait, which is a very important choke point, which kind of constrains China. And it is one of China's Achilles heels, yes, because all the... Uh, all the trade that all the all the goods all the cargo that passes that passes out that goes out of china or goes into china passes through the malacca strait and the great nicobar island sits right there at the mouth of the strait so if india has a massive 
naval capability over here whether it's a civilian port which obviously will have military capabilities then obviously it's a game changer for india so it will have trade uh, it will have uh, trade benefits it's going to make india a major player it's it will be one of the india's major ports here and of course it will have a military dimension any port which can handle massive ships can handle massive warships as well yes so yeah i'm sure it will have dual use capabilities there are various ports in india that have dual use capabilities they are used in a multitude of ways so this is going to be that so yes of course you will have to cut down some trees maybe 80 800000 trees or whatever the number is that is unfortunately inevitable the long term national interest is paramount a few trees can be planted somewhere else again to replace what we have cut here see if you look at the past 7 8 years india's forest cover is gradually increasing india is the only major nation whose forest cover percentage is growing year after week after year so the government is doing everything it can as opposed to other major nations when it comes to reforestation and and and, and safeguarding the environment so india is the last nation you can accuse of being anti environment india is doing more than most other major nations if not all other major nations including the developed world yes india's forest cover is growing year after year so in light of that a few trees being cut down for the sake of india's national security is a sacrifice we are willing to make yes there are indeed uh, an aboriginal uh, people who live here and uh, they have been isolated for a long time they are not the sentinelese people they are i forget the name of the of the tribe i am sure they will be taken care of india has been extremely uh, sensitive when it comes to uh, matters re- uh, related to these isolated populations we have the north sentinel island over here which india is ensuring that nobody is allowed to come here right recently some ridiculous american preacher tried to go there with a the bible and he was shot to death with arrows by the people of this island and so be it so india has ensured that this island and the people who live here north central island are not interfered with in any way whatsoever nobody is allowed to go to the island whether it's indian citizens or foreigners yes this essentially is an indian protectorate a self governing indian protectorate india does not implement indian law there and india allows the people of that region of that island to live life as they please according to their own customs so india has been es- extremely sensitive to the interests of these tribal populations when it comes to the people of great nicobar i am sure everything will be done to ensure that their well-being is safeguarded more than what the more than the well-being of other indigenous peoples are safeguarded in whether it's australia or new zealand or north america or south america india does far better than them so these concerns are completely misplaced i i can understand where the concerns come from from they come from outside india and in when from from quarters within india that are funded and financed by foreign powers so that's fine yeah we we need not concern ourselves with that so the forest issue will be taken care of we will plant other trees elsewhere to ensure that there is no uh, that to offset the trees that will be cut here i am sure that the rest of the uh, great nagobar island will or the environment environment will also be taken care of very well and the aboriginal people the tribal tribal people their well being will also be safeguarded but india's national interest has to be paramount which is why this particular project is going to take off and yes see the deal is this the question was about uh, the chinese string of pearls strategy 
So China's string of pearls strategy is about encircling India with a network of Chinese bases. There is this base in Hambantota. They wanted to have a base in Maldives, a naval base. There is a base in Djibouti. There is one in in uh, in Gwadar in Pakistan. They want to have a port in uh, Bangladesh, maybe in Burma, maybe in Malaysia as well. So they want to encircle India with these. Uh, the Chinese want to encircle India with this so-called string of pearls. So to counter that, India needs to build its own maritime and naval infrastructure, and this will go a long way towards doing that. And obviously, there is going to be something I expect there will be Air Force bases also coming up in this region. Because if you have a massive port establishment established over here, you need to safeguard it in a variety of ways, including with air power. So I expect that uh, whatever Air Force capabilities we have in this region will be enhanced significantly, which is great. So India should build its own network of, of naval bases, air force bases in this region, which will ensure that whatever gains the Chinese are making will be offset or, or neutralized or overwhelmed. So yes, now finally, I have been saying this for more than a year, that why is India not doing anything to upgrade its infrastructure in the Andaman Nicobar region? Well, here is the answer. It's happening. And I'm so glad to see this. So yes, overall, a very good development from the economic perspective, from the trade perspective, from the transshipment perspective, and also from the geopolitical, geostrategic, and naval perspective. Excellent development all around. It needs to continue, continue, continue. This is just, this has to be just the first step, one, the first step of many, but an excellent, strong move in the right direction. Lanchimba says, Jordan Peterson says, Britain is the only country which, who helped get rid of slavery. Are some of his points true? And uh, the other question is, Jordan Peterson recently said, Africa is not poor because of colonization. <laughs> What's your opinion? Uh, there was a time when I used to actually enjoy, you know, listening to Jordan Peterson once in a while. He used to make sense. But of late, it looks like he's been drinking too much of his own Kool-Aid, which means he's become inflated with his self sense of self-importance because he got so much, so much praise from various quarters. And now he's all puffed up with ego and pride and arrogance. And you can see the real Jordan, Peter, Jordan Peterson emerging out of what we used, what we thought he used to be. So he recently had this clip on his channel. I unfortunately watched it just to understand what was being said. So the main theme of this, he had a discussion on his channel, YouTube channel. He has a YouTube channel. He had a discussion with an African lady. Her name is, uh, I forget her name. Uh, she is somebody, I'm not sure. I mean, if you, if you look for, search for her on the internet, it doesn't tell you what nation she is from. It just says Africa, 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 as if Africa is a nation. So I'm not sure which country within Africa she hails from, but it looks like she's based in the US. She's somebody who speaks English well. And these people are very useful for the West. Indigenous peoples who speak good English and who parrot the Western narrative. So the theme of this discussion, the main claim was that Africans are responsible for Africa's underdevelopment. It's all because of the greed and corruption of the people who are in power in Africa. And why do Africans essentially keep on electing such people? So it's all, all of it is because of the Africans themselves. They are the ones who are responsible for this. And this lady that uh, Mr. Peterson, Dr. Peterson interviewed, she was going on and on about 
a claim that she was making that English common law is a gift from the gods. Oh, no, not the gods, the God, the only one, the one and only God, the true God. Yeah, English common law is a gift from God. That's what she kept on saying, right? Now, these individuals, they were totally bypassing and, and neglecting the fact that Africa used to be a very highly developed place. It's a massive continent, massive, huge continent. It dwarfs India and North America and the US and China and everything. You can fit all of these nations into Africa and still you have a lot of room to spare. It's a massive continent. They had empires, they had kingdoms, they had civilizations. There was an enormous amount of prosperity and development and culture in Africa before the Europeans came, put foot there. And the Europeans destroyed Africa thoroughly. In the late 20th, uh, 19th century or early 20th century, I forget when, the kingdom of Benin, the great city of Benin was destroyed in just one day by the British. It was an incredibly highly developed and advanced city and a, and a very, very prosperous, very rich kingdom. It was destroyed in just one day. The whole city was razed to the ground. And today people live there in shanty towns, in slums. If Africa is poor, it's because of Western colonization uh, mostly English-speaking colonizers. Of course, the Belgians were involved in this. They were also culpable. The, the, the Germans were there. All the Western nations, including France, are responsible for the complete destruction of not just the African economy, but the African civilizations. Yeah. But these, these people like Jordan Peterson, etc., they want to, essentially, they want to employ or use Africans who speak English, good, good English, and who are who, who are willing to parrot the Western narrative, they want to use such people in order to make it look like, see, it's not I who am saying it, it's Africans who are saying it. Therefore, I must be right. Yeah. Have you heard of Cecil Rhodes? Cecil Rhodes was a, a British capitalist and politician and imperialist and racist and mining magnet and enslaver and destroyer of Africa who lived in the 19th century. He died in the early 20th century. Right, he he was uh, a politician who essentially became the president or prime minister or whatever of the Cape Colony, down south in south uh, in South Africa. He wanted the West. He wanted England to own Africa from the Cape to Cairo, from the southernmost point to the northernmost point. Yeah, he was financed by Rothschild and Company, which is a corporation that still exists. Yeah. So his, his mining activities and whatever else he was doing, it was all financed by Rothschild and company. He was the founder of the D. Beers diamond company, which still exists, which is still making enormous profits out of diamonds. Diamonds are quite common. But what D. Beers does is, is that it hoards all the diamond in the world and it sells maybe 1% or 2% per year so that the prices are kept artificially high. Diamonds are quite common in the earth, well, in the earth's surface, earth's, earth's crust, etc. So this fellow, Cecil Rhodes, was the founder of the D. Beers Company. He was the founder of the British South Africa Company, which was into materials and mining. He was the founder of the Consolidated Gold Fields Company, which existed until 1988. Yeah, And he was a destroyer of Africa. He was a racist. He was an imperialist. He indulged in various forms of slavery. The British are the masters of slavery. They instituted slavery so many times. A thousand years ago, more than 10% of the people who lived in England were slaves. They had to wear copper or metal collars from birth to death. Yeah. And, uh, and the Cecil Rhodes is a great example of, of, uh, of, of these attitudes. And after he died, in his will, he left behind money for the so-called Cecil Rhodes 
scholarship. The objective of the Cecil Rhodes scholarship is to promote unity among English-speaking nations. Is It's essentially a scholarship given to people to study at Oxford. This perpetuates the idea of British supremacy and primacy. And many Indians benefit benefit from this scholarship. Many prominent Indians promote the Cecil Rhodes scholarship from time to time, including people who are even today closely associated with the government of India. I will not name anybody. Look it up yourself. Many Indians still perpetuate, still promote this Rhodes scholarship, right? So Jordan Peterson has shown his true face. He is essentially a white supremacist. Yeah. His entire perspective is Occidentalist. It's Eurocentric. He says that Western civilization is the, is the greatest thing that ever happened in the world. Everyone knows what Western civilization was built on, built upon. The, the late Shri, uh, the late Mr. Mohandas Gandhi, of whom I am no big fan, he said that Western civilization would have been a good idea if it actually existed or something to that effect. Yeah. Western civilization is actually the Western Empire. It's, it's the Anglo-Saxon Empire, which was built upon the slavery and destruction and genocide of, of, of India and Africa, to some extent China, and also of North America. And the Spanish Empire was built upon the destruction of South America, parts of Africa as well. And Philippines, parts of Eastern Asia and, and so on. The entire West is built upon slavery, genocide and plunder. And Jordan Peterson says that Western civilization, whatever it is, is the greatest thing that ever happened in human in human history. And he keeps on perpetuating these narratives that, you know, if, if people are poor, if people uh, are in a, a bad condition and so on, it's because of their, it's their own fault. He is essentially blaming the victim. So yeah, it's, it's uh, disappointing to see somebody of uh, Mr. Dr. Peterson's stature doing this, but he, he uh, it's disappointing, but not surprising. Yeah. So I used to uh, kind of enjoy listening to him speak a few years ago when he used to speak about uh, Marxism and those things. But yeah, nowadays it's, he's, he's shown his true, true, true colors. It's uh, he, he is an apologist, apologist of, of uh, Western colonization, of slavery, of imperialism of white supremacy and everything else associated with it. So, yeah, that is what I have to say about this matter. Okay, Blob Dob <laughs> says, Have you seen the most famous American conservative, Tucker Carlson, say on his program that Britain left India as civilization and Indians can't create architecture like the old Victoria Terminus in Mumbai? Neil says, your views on Tucker Carlson saying British left India with a civilization, a language, a legal system, schools, churches. Oh, thank you, sir. You showed it. Churches, which are still in use today and British ruled everywhere they went with unmatched decency. And after they left Africa, it went to ruins because the Africans could not manage themselves. They are an uncivilized primitive people, no? So why do people believe this and justify colonial crimes like this, especially in the West? You see, beneath the veneer, the thin veneer of civilization and, and decency that they wear, this is the true, true, true nature. This is, the true, uh, this is what they truly believe. Eurocentrism, imperialism, 
colonialism, these values are still very deeply ingrained in the West. And with that comes racism and white supremacy, a, a, a sense that white people, people with white skin are superior to people with darker, with darker skin. That is inherent in all these claims, whether it is Jordan Peterson, whether it is Tucker Carlson, whether it's somebody else. You, you had Hillary Clinton speaking about people getting off the reservation, which is a horribly offensive and racist term against the native people of the, of, of the Americas. Yeah. Racism is, is inbuilt in the society. It is part of the fabric of society in the West. Unfortunately, I'm not saying all Western people are racist. There are many decent people in the West. But the structure of Western, of, of the Anglo-Saxon Empire is built on a foundation of imperialism, colonialism, slavery, and racism, and white supremacy. Yes, they even used to treat the Irish people as, as subhumans for the longest time until they had to oppress the black people, the African origin Americans and the Native Americans. It's only then that they elevated the people of Ireland or Irish origin people to the status of full white people. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 a sordid history. And yeah, you, you've had Tucker Carlson speak about this. He, I mean, when it comes to India, they can still be racist because India Indians are mostly still still. Hindus and Hinduism is to be denigrated. So uh, you may not say bad things these days about, about people of African origin. You may not say bad things about people who practice an Abrahamic religion. Yes, because it would be a certain kind of phobia. But it's perfectly fine to use racist uh, terminology and racist slurs against people of India, especially those who are Christians, or those who are not Christian, or especially those who are Hindus. And uh, so that's the deal. And Tucker Carlson, lots of Indians support the American right, which is the Republican Party. Yes. Well, Tucker Carlson is on the right of the American political divide. He is a conservative. Yeah. And there you have him expressing <laughs> the same, uh, essentially the same viewpoint. And it's interesting to note that uh, Tulsi Gabbard is a regular uh is a regular participant on Tucker, Car Tucker Carlson's uh, broadcasts. I am um, not trying to throw any shade at Tulsi. She's a good lady. Yeah, she's one of the few American politicians who openly condemns Hindu phobia, and who is actually on India's side, as far as I can see. So I'm not trying to throw any shade at Tulsi. But yeah, this is the deal with Tucker Carlson. He is clearly a white supremacist and a racist, and he believes that uh, their so-called civilization. Is the only civilization that ever was, and before them, India was India and Africa were primitive and barbaric and savage lands, uh, full of hiddens. And now that India has uh, British architecture and British language and British legal system, British schools, British education, and churches, good God, that's why India is now civilized. This is textbook racism. This is textbook imperialism, and so on. So yeah, it's I'm, I'm not surprised, and it's it's just uh, I would say shameful that people in the West, prominent people in the West, still espouse such opinions openly. That's the deal. That that of course is the foundation of Western culture and civilization. Manmath says, "What is this thing going on in the American academia?" about uh, this term South Asia instead of the Indian subcontinent. Any Indian achievement, they name it as South Asian. And any negative aspect, they will call it Indian. 
what is the reason behind this entire south asian narrative so lots of people have asked this question i've just taken this one as a representative of all those questions you know there is no such okay let's understand what is asia they say that india the indian subcontinent continent they want to call it south asia so that the term indian is not used it it has always been the indian subcontinent but now the americans want to call it south asia so that the term indian doesn't come into the picture now to understand the origins of all this first of all we have something called asia do you see a continent called asia here is there a separate asia in europe no it's just one landmass which uh, some people call eurasia there is no geographical boundary or separation between what they call europe and what they call asia so where did this concept of asia come from my dear friends are you aware are you aware of, of where this concept this name asia came from let me uh throw a little bit of light on that yeah because th this is important we we need to know this look here this is a map of the roman empire at its greatest extent whatever year it is all right so the red shaded portion is the western part of the peninsula of anatolia anatolia is present day turkey i mean more than 90% of turkey present day turkey is anatolia anatolia was historically greek so this red shaded portion of anatolia during roman times do you know what it was called it was called asia so these were the various anatolian provinces during roman times this these were the administrative divisions of anatolia and surrounding regions during the roman era you had asia you had galatia bithynia thrace macedonia cappadocia armenia syria macedonia arabia cyprus lycia and so on so forth cilicia okay so the this province this region the western part of anatolia was called asia and where did this name come from asia there was a confederation of anatolian uh, principalities called asuva during the hittite mitanni time which is about 1500 bc so this region was called asuva at the time the romans distorted that into asia so asia was a roman province after the dissolution and uh, decay of the roman empire the entirety of of everything west of this place called asia began to be called asia by europeans this is a complete distortion of of actual naming uh, names of the regions and this is a eurocentric perspective they take any random name and they assign it to a place like for instance we have the what what do they call it adams bridge which is ramasetu they have arbitrarily assigned a name adams bridge to the ramasetu yes they have arbitrarily called the kalinga mahasagar the bay of bengal they have arbitrarily called the sea of saurashtra as the arabian sea even the arabians used to call it the indian ocean the british and the in the, in the anglo saxon empire have arbitrarily changed the names of places all across the world um sagar matha is now called mount everest yeah and 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 the champa sea is now called the south china sea i can give you thousands of examples but let's not go there so similarly this small province 
in western anatolia was called asia eventually the europeans gave the entire continent west of this region the name of asia and now the americans have decided that we will not use the term the indian subcontinent to talk about the indian continent a uh, subcontinent instead we will call it south asia so uh, like manmath points out whenever something uh, any achievement that is done by indians they will term it a south asian achievement lay great news for the people of south asia and great news for south asian origin people in in the us but when some bad news comes out of india they will not use the term south asia they will say it's something that's going wrong in india so any good thing that happens they want to give the credit to this imaginary place called south asia and anything bad happens anything good happens anything bad happens they will blame india for it for instance in the uk you have various pakistani origin criminal gangs grooming gangs that perpetrate all kinds of horrific crimes on 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 girls in the uk and the police doesn't ever do anything about it so these gangs which are all exclusively pakistani men these gangs are in the media called south asian gangs yeah so essentially it 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 makes it look like, because if you look at the so called south asia region it's mostly india so people readers who are not aware of what's really happening will start thinking of indians as criminals so anytime something bad happens they will blame it on south asia anytime something good happens so so it's it's like that so so they when they, so this is the kind of playbook they are using any indian achievement is south asian any bad thing also when it when it suits them is south asian and so on but uh, typically the bad things don't come out of india so if a bad thing is of pakistani origin they will say it's a south asian bad thing that sort of thing so this is something that is being orchestrated out of the us it is something that comes out of the american academia all american academics and think tanks exclusively use the term south asia to talk about the indian subcontinent so what do we do about this we should stop using the term south asia lots of indians gullible indians they have been they have started using the term south asia we are south asians no you're not south asians you're indians even pakistanis are indians the entire indian subcontinent is historically cultural and ethnically indian so please stop using the term south asia start using the term the indian subcontinent that will ensure that that essentially tells you the what is the indian subcontinent it is greater india it is the future akhand bharat that's what it is so please use the term indian subcontinent do not use the term south asia this is an insidious term created by the americans to manipulate public opinion about india and to steal credit from india when required and to put blame on india when it suits them so that's the deal okay rajesh kumar sharma says when will india become the third largest economy good question so currently the us economy is the largest economy 25 or so trillion dollars china comes next 19.9 almost 20 trillion dollars you know the numbers may be here or there a little bit but more or less accurate the third largest economy is japan 4.9 trillion dollars then you have fourth japan which is 4.2 4.3 trillion trillion dollars and then you have india at 3.53 which is just ahead of the uk we have just surpassed the uk and we are never going behind behind the uk ever again right so we are on an upward trajectory 
we are the fastest growing major economy in the world we are currently at 3.53 trillion dollars now what do we mean by our gdp is 3.53 trillion dollars it means that that is the gdp output economic output of india per year it's not the total value of india and its economy it's the economic output per year and that is growing it's growing every year it's grow the first quarter of this year it grew at 13.6% which is humongous let's see if we can keep up the rate that would be great so if we are currently at 3.53 and the japanese economy is in the doldrums it's not really expanding much it's currently at 4.9 let's say 5 into 3 years or 5 years so if the indian economy from this starting point of 3.53 trillion dollars grows at 7% per year we will reach the 5 trillion dollar mark by 2028 5.3 if we grow at 8% we will reach the 5 trillion dollar mark by 2027 at 8% we will be a 6.5 trillion dollar economy by 2030 you grow at 10% we will be at 5.2 trillion dollars by 2026 itself and at that rate we will be at 7.6 trillion dollars by 2030 and if india grows at the incredible rate of 12% per year we will reach 4.96 almost 5 trillion dollars by 2025 itself and by 2030 we will be at 8.7 trillion dollars at that rate so india is on the right track by 2030 no matter what happens we will have crossed 5 trillion dollars we would like to reach there by 2025 actually for that the indian economy will have to grow at 12% plus per year which is not out of the realms of possibility so things are looking good good for india the only concern is that we need to ensure that we don't get dragged into any unnecessary conflicts right now we need peace we need a 20 year period of peace no major geopolitical or military conflict if we can manage that if we can engineer that sort of thing we will be unstoppable we will be too big for anybody for anyone to even think of fighting so at least until 2030 we need to ensure that we are at peace with all our neighbors no matter what is required we'll do it and reach the 10 trillion dollar mark and then it will be very hard for anybody to even think of uh, trying to needle india or to open any military conflict with india that's where we are and that's where we are going my dear friends ronak says what are your thoughts on mr uh, on on mr biden president us president biden being given special convoy in the uk for her great majesty the queen's funeral while other lesser world leaders will travel by bus well <laughs> so uh mr biden whenever he goes to uh, a nation outside the us he typically prefers to travel by helicopter yeah not even a limousine so it's either a special helicopter a us air force helicopter that's specially used for the president if not that then the special limousine that has been designed for the us president it's called the beast it's a massive you know beast like limousine very very well secured armored heavily armored well protected and very comfortable so he typically uses a helicopter or the beast so when it comes to this uh, funeral of this uh, individual the queen elizabeth ii uh, many world leaders are going there for the funeral and mr biden is there is going to be there and he actually wanted to travel by helicopter 
but uh, it was not uh, deemed feasible that's why he has been allowed uh, to travel by that uh, special limousine which is called the beast unfortunately the various other world leaders who are going there will have to travel together in a bus mr biden said that i do not ever travel by bus how can you expect me to travel by bus i am the leader of the free world yeah so uh, so why has he been given the special permission well because the us owns the uk the us is the boss whoever mr biden i mean mr biden is the is is the supposedly the leader of the us so how can they refuse him right so uh, the uk is a vassal state when your overlord comes to your territory you give him every comfort he demands you you do everything he tells you that's how it goes with uh, with the client with the with the overlord in the vassal state that's the relationship that's how it is so that's why he has been given special dispensation to do whatever he wants maybe the journey is too short for to for him to travel by helicopter and of course we have to please we have to be a little compassionate to to mr biden he is slightly advanced just a little bit advanced in age yes so because of these factors and because of his status as the official representative of the overlord that's why he has been given this this special dispensation or or permission to do as he wishes on the soil of his vassal the uk right i am sure that india the indian prime minister is not going there we are most likely sending uh, our president uh, the lady what's her name uh, mrs dropadi murmu yeah we are sending her she is representing india in the funeral and it's just a courtesy it's not like we are giving any special honors to the queen of england it's just a diplomatic uh, gesture standard diplomatic gesture when a major world leader good or bad dies you typically pay a certain amount of respect as a token gesture when that other individual edwina mountbatten died our incredibly magnificent and magnanimous prime minister shri jawaharlal nehru ji he sent one or two indian naval destroyers to to the funeral to pay tribute to the, the lady whom he greatly admired because she was so magnificent like him yes so we are not doing that anymore we are just sending our president to the funeral as as a token gesture and it's a, it's a good experience for the president as well because i i think that could probably be one of her first visits outside india in her official capacity as the president of india so it serves multiple purposes and it is not some great special uh, honor to to the to the queen okay dash plays says during the french versus british conflict in india do you think the french might have been better for india or do you think that all european conquerors have the same mindset hmm what do you think peoples my peoples what do you think if instead of the british you had french occupation and colonization of india do you think india would be in a better place today do you think so i know we we would all have been speaking french it is true but apart from the french culture and language do you think india would have been better off india would have been destroyed less india would have had less famines india's culture would have survived better do you think so let me um, so uh, let me tell you what i think of this i am sure you all know of this place called puducherry in southern india where is puducherry it it used to be called pondicherry 
yeah it's somewhere in southern india i've been there actually very very nice place very nice people uh so it's actually in the midst of the tamil heartland of india tamil nadu it's a few uh maybe 150 or so kilometers south of the great city of chennai beautiful city of chennai that's puducherry so this was ruled by the french until very recently until the 20th century now in puducherry which was called pondicherry there is something called the immaculate conception cathedral let's look at that let us put that on the screen let me google that uh immaculate conception cathedral pondicherry this is the immaculate conception cathedral pondicherry if you would like to see what it looks like here is what it looks like this is the 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 building yes now do you know the history of this place do you know the history of the immaculate conception cathedral in pondicherry it stands on the location on the site of the great vedapuri ishwaran temple which was demolished by the french east india company in the 18th century i think it was 14 um, 1748 what's the story behind this how do we know this happened because there was there is a diary that was maintained by shri anandaranga pillai who was appointed as the chief dubash by the french in 1740 something what is a dubash a translator who speaks two languages the local language which is tamil and the foreign occupiers language which is french so shri anandaranga pillai spoke two languages or maybe more but the two main languages that are of interest are tamil and french so shri anandaranga pillai maintained a diary in which he recorded all the major events of his times so um there was this governor this french uh, french governor general of of this region his name was joseph francois duplay so he was the governor of pondicherry when these events happened he had a wife who was very strongly devout staunch catholic and so on so uh the jesuits the jesuit priests were involved in this the jesuits are a certain section of the of the church they are uh, they were the people who were typically employed by the church to steal knowledge from other places like from the east essentially from mainly from india scientific knowledge mathematical knowledge astronomical knowledge uh, philosophical knowledge from india even from tibet even from china and various other parts of the world so the jesuits were involved in pondicherry the jesuits obtained a letter a permission from the king of france to destroy the vedapuri ishwaran temple which was the principal temple that was used that was that was the principal temple of the people of pondicherry yes the greatest temple in pondicherry most of the people of pondicherry used to go there for religious uh, devotion and all, all that yep so the jesuits obtained permission from the king of france to destroy this temple but the people were against that that's why they were not able to do that because otherwise it would it would cause disturbances and troubles so uh, what the jesuits started doing is this they started repeatedly desecrating the temple in a variety of ways that's uh, all mentioned in the diary of shri anandaranga pillai eventually in 1748 at the peak of english british french hostilities pondicherry was besieged by the british and most of the population of pondicherry the hindus they had moved out of town 
for their safety. It is then that the Jesuits destroyed the temple. Right? And this was done at the instigation of the wife of Sri Duplay, the French governor general. So this is just a small sample of what the French did in the small territory that they ruled. Imagine, they, imagine that they had ruled the whole of India. What do you think they would have done? They could possibly have been, possibly, I'm not saying for sure, possibly could have even been, you know, worse than the British. Who knows? It's a possibility. So my answer is, my, my answer is very clear. All the European occupiers, invaders, conquerors had the same mindset. They were all principally motivated by a desire to plunder the land and extract everything of value out of it. And secondly, to spread their foreign religion into India. So whether it's the British or the French, they essentially had the same objectives and the same overall mindset. So there, that's why I believe that French rule over India, had it happened instead of British rule, would have been no different. For India. At the end of the whole process, India would have been just as destroyed as it was under the British, maybe even worse. And culturally also the same kind of damage would have happened. So that is what I think I have been able to demonstrate to you from this one example of the small territory the French ruled and what they did there. So you can extrapolate that to the rest of India had they been able to rule that. Okay, Philippines, Philippines. Laksha says, how did the Philippines become a Christian country? Do they know their true history? And why don't they re-embrace their indigenous religion or culture? So, where are the Philippines? What is the Philippines? It's, it's a nation. Let's go back to the map. Where is the map? We will put that on the map and see where it is. Uh, okay. I hope you all know where it is, the Philippines, in case you don't. This is India. You know where India is? Let's go east, east, east. East of India is Thailand, Vietnam, all that. There is Southeast Asia. And then you have the archipelago, which is now currently known for whatever reason as the Philippines. So this is the Philippines. And what is their history? How did they become Christian? The Philippines are, is an almost exclusively, exclusively and entirely, almost Christian nation, Catholic nation, almost entirely. There are some pockets of, of indigenous belief systems, you know, some, some tribes that are considered to be primitive and backward. And there are some elements of, of some Muslim people in the Philippines to some extent in some places. But overall, it's Christian. It's been for a very long time. What is the story? So if you go back a thousand or so years, maybe more, Philippines was Hindu. Yeah. Uh, because of the Chola conquest and maybe because of before that, because of the uh, influence of the great Kalinga empire as well. So the Kalingan, the people of Kalinga have been trading with Southeast Asia, Suvarnabhumi, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, all that for more than 3000 years, maybe even before that. Yeah. So initially the whole of Southeast Asia was Indianized by the people of Kalinga, the traders. And then you had Indianized kingdoms that sprang up in these regions. So that's how you had the first Indianization of this region. You had the establishment of Dharma, of, of, of various flavors of Dharma, whether it is Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever you want to call it, and of the Sanskrit language. Then you had the Chola conquest, which happened about a thousand years before today. It had geopolitical reasons. So the first, uh, the so then you had something called the, the 
the Raja of Cebu. Cebu is this island that you see here. Yeah. So the uh, first known Raja, or the, maybe the last known Raja of Cebu, his name was Sri Lumai. Sri Lumai. He is believed to have been half Indian, half Malay. He was a Chola prince. Maybe his mother could have been of Malay origin. Maybe his father, most likely his mother. Yeah. So he was a minor priest of the uh, minor pre, uh, prince of the Chola dynasty, half Indian, half Malay, and he was the king of this island, which is called Cebu, in the Philippines. Right? Then you had a great uh, Filipino freedom fighter. His name was Sri Lapu Lapu, Sri Lapu Lapu, who fought against Spanish colonization. So there was this Portuguese. Uh, Portuguese pirate, Portuguese uh, imperialist called Ferdinand Magellan, who was trying to circumnavigate the entire planet. So he was passing through the Philippines and he he came up to his old, the imperialist colonialist, colonialist tricks. And the this guy, this great man, Sri Lapu Lapu, fought against Ferdinand Magellan in a battle that had happened in the early, in the first half of the 16th century. The uh, imperialists were defeated. Ferdinand Magellan was killed in this battle. And this delayed Spanish colonization of the region by about 40-50 years. Maybe 30-40 years. Yeah. So, uh, Sri Lapu Lapu was also most likely a Hindu. If not Hindu, then he was he, he was an animist or whatever. The Filipino indigenous uh, culture and faith. Or maybe something syncretic. And then you had the period of Spanish colonization, which uh, which went on from the, from the 15... From the second half of the 16th century until 1898, the Philippines, this nation, is named after a Spanish king, King Philip II, who was in power in the 16th century. Yeah. So in the in the last decade of the 19th century, in 1896, I believe there was a Filipino uh, revolution. They call it a revolution. It was a war of independence. Yeah, it was an anti-colonial war against the Spanish occupiers. It was brutally crushed by the Span Spaniards. Then there was a Philippine Declaration of Independence in 1898. When, when did this Declaration of Independence happen? It coincided with the Spanish-American War, which the Spaniards eventually lost. But instead of, instead of uh, respecting and honoring the Philippine Declaration of Independence, the Americans occupied the Philippines and colonized it. Good fun. And then you had all kinds of brutal atrocities that the Americans perpetrated on the Philippines. Yeah. And you can read about it. I'm sure you can read about it uh, if, if you look where. Um, uh, so that's the story. So that's how the Philippines were brutally transformed into a Christian country, a Catholic country by the Spaniards. The entire occupation lasted uh, like significant amount of time. Yeah. And uh, so that's what happened. And every single, whatever existed of, of Filipino culture was brutally smashed out of the Filipino people. Even today, the Filipino people are a very, they are, with, they are very nice people. Very, very, very cultured people. That comes from their original culture. They're not like the Spaniards. You know, the, the, the attitude and the cultural outlook of Filipino people is markedly different from though that of Spanish people. So that difference comes from the old 
culture, whatever of that still remains in the Philippines. But they have lost all traces of their culture. They have no written records left. There are some, sometimes you find some artifacts which are written in Sanskrit. Yeah, but they, they can no longer read it. They no longer remember what their original culture was like. There is no trace of Hinduism or, or, or their pre-Hindu culture left at all in the Philippines. Even if they want to re rediscover it and reconnect with it, there is nothing they can do about it. So it's been thoroughly uh, destroyed, Filipino culture. And uh, I think uh, the current president of the Philippines, Mr. Duterte, he had expressed a desire to rename the nation to Maharlik, which seems to have some kind of Sanskrit origin. I'm not sure if it will ever be done, but he had uh, said that he wanted to do that at some point in time. So yeah, that is the deal about the Philippines. That's, that's, that's the story. That's how it all happened. It was Their culture was smashed out of them by the Spaniards. The Spanish have been also have also been incredibly brutal wherever, wherever they ruled. Um, and the Philippines are a good example of that. Okay, Studious Psycho says, I read an article in Hindu Sometimes where they were comparing Mr. Ataturk with Mr. with the great Srinayaruji. Uh, and so on and so forth. Kamal Ataturk built the golden way of Turkey. Nehru took credit of various things. I don't think they had anything in parallel. Do you think they had? And so on. Yeah, thank you. So, is there any way we can compare Mustafa Kemal Ataturk with the magnificent Shri Jawaharlal Nehruji? So let's let's look at the careers of both people. Mr. Nehru was born into a very affluent family. Yeah. Very powerful family. His father was, was a very affluent, very prosperous person. Uh, I don't know the entire history of his father, his family, but there are various stories that are told. I'm not sure what to what extent what is true, but yeah. And he had a privileged upbringing. He was educated in England. He had all the trappings of wealth and luxury. And he was selected as the Prime Minister of India, even though uh, whatever little democracy existed had voted for Mr. Patel. But Mr. Gandhi arm-twisted the Indian National Congress into agreeing to his demand to appoint Mr. Nehru as the first Prime Minister of India after the transfer of power from the British to the Indian National Congress. So Mr. Nehru did not have any genuine struggle. Whenever he went to prison under the British, it was typically in a five-star jail. Yeah, uh, It was not the kind of prison that you would have in Kalapani in the Andamans or anything like that. His first experience in prison was kind of uncomfortable. And after that, he ensured that he never had to experience it again. So all the other times he was in prison was in relative luxury. Now let's talk about Mr. Ataturk. Mr. Ataturk, uh, his, he was born in the 19th century in Salonika, which is present-day Thessaloniki in Greece. He had a tough childhood. I think his father died early. His mother was of, I think, Albanian ethnicity. His father was a Turk. And uh, he was good at math. He was good at the geometry and all, all those things. He went to military school. He found that he had a great aptitude for all things military. He became a young officer. He was for some time involved in some rebellion against the caliphate, against the sultan. He was imprisoned briefly, but then he was allowed to go back to military life. He was a soldier. He participated in various wars. Uh, 
eventually what he did was he fought in he fought in the first world war he defeated the british and the allies at gallipoli in this great debacle that happened in the gallipoli gallipoli peninsula which was all at the behest of winston churchill he thought that he would be able to you know capture constantinople istanbul he failed only because of the exploits of one man mustafa kemal ataturk it was a terrible campaign but ataturk came out of it with incredible uh, success in flying colors that enhances his reputation incredibly in turkey uh at the end of world war 1 turkey was destroyed turkey was defeated the allies the victorious powers had partitioned turkey into numerous pieces ataturk did not accept that he went to war he fought the turkish war of independence not only against the europeans against the european occupying powers but also against his own sultan the last sultan of turkey the, the caliph and against all these forces ranged up against him he was fighting a lone campaign alone against everybody else and yet he came out on top he succeeded and he dragged turkey out of occupation and partition into independence he carved an independent turkey out of nothing you know turkey was done but just because of the the strength of will and the exploits of one man turkey was able to be independent so he fought the occupiers he fought the sultan and he grabbed independence and victory with his own two hands and he brought that to turkey through sheer force of will and through his military exploit exploits can you compare a man like that with the great magnificent shri jawaharlal nehru ji can you i i will leave the answer up to you that's for you to judge mazar says can you tell me about the origin of the sindhi people are they aryan or dravidian look there is no such thing as aryan or dravidian these are fake categories created by the foreign occupiers of india these are fake eurocentric categories there is no such thing as aryan or dravidian the people of india are one people they have the same origins yeah now when it comes to the sindhi people well where is sindh let's let's go to the map where is the map so i am sure all indians know where sindh is sindh is this part of the indian subcontinent uh, west of gujarat kutch and rajasthan the capital used to be meenanagar that is now called karachi it was called meenanagar during the reign of the great mahakshatrapa nahapana so and there is this other city called hyderabad in this region i'm not sure what its original name was and sindh is named after the sindhu the great river sindhu which is the westerners called indus so what's the origin of the sindhi people well this region has been under human occupation for tens of thousands of years the first time homo sapiens came here was about 75 80000 years before today when the out of africa migration happened through the bab al mandeb straight over here and the arabian peninsula was all dry and deserted but the coastal regions were greenish that's why homo sapiens was able to travel northwards then there was a second crossing over here the strait of hormuz and that's where homo sapiens first entered the region of the indian subcontinent if you consider iran and persia to be part of the indian subcontinent which is it is geographically part of and then because of because the coastal regions were still kind of green and forested homo sapiens went westwards 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 and then reached india the indian subcontinent which is full of rivers incredibly rich 
fertile soil, excellent climate. That's where the first human inhabitation out of Africa happened. And since then, the region of Sindh and the Indian subcontinent have been inhabited. Now, if you look at recent history, there used to be a kingdom called Sindhu and a kingdom called Sovira, which are attested to in the Mahabharata. I think the great warrior Karna speaks about the people of Sovira, of the Sovira kingdom and so on. So the Sindhu Sovira kingdom has been here. I mean, it, it inhabited this region for, I mean, ever since the Mahabharata times. We don't quite know when the Mahabharata happened. Let's say four, five thousand years before today, maybe five thousand years before today, maybe six thousand years, somewhere around that. So this kingdom was there at that time. So the people of Sindh are essentially the people of India. There is nothing genetically specifically different about the people of Sindh or the people of Balochistan from the other people of other parts of India. So that essentially, in brief, is the origin of the Sindhi people. Um, you also had the great Saraswati Sindhu phase of Indian civilization, which was centered around the great rivers, river valleys, the seven river valleys in this region, including the two great rivers, the Saraswati and the Sindhu. The Saraswati no longer exists, but it used to be in this region and so on. So that is the origin of the Sindhi people, which is the same as the origin of the people of the Indian subcontinent and India and Pakistan and Afghanistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Maldives, and so on and so forth. Did I miss something? If I did, apologies. But yeah, you get, you get the point. Right. Dr. Neeraj Rai tweeted once that early wheat evidence from Bagash, Central Asia, uh, share common morphological traits with wheat from Indus during earlier phases of the 3rd millennium BC. And this proves the dispersal of the crop from Bharat rather than being carried across the Eurasian steppe. What's your thoughts on this? And another question about Dr. Neeraj Roy finding R1A sample from the Sinauli site. Let me take the second question first. I don't know for sure. Uh, I'm not sure if he has tweeted about this. Uh, if the a sample, an R1A sample has indeed been found, it will eventually be written about. The entire study will be published in a scientific journal and then we will know. So I don't have any, any special information that others don't know. I, I haven't spoken to him about this particular matter. Maybe we will revisit this again. We will visit this perhaps in the next conversation that I have that we have on this channel. But yeah, thus far, I am not sure about whether it is true or not. Now about wheat and all that, we know that the earliest evidence of agriculture attested to Homo sapiens anywhere in the world is in the Indian subcontinent. Now the Eurocentric uh, establishment historians have been for the longest time claiming that agriculture first emerged in the so-called Fertile Crescent region. What is the Fertile Crescent region? It is this region, uh, you know, the, the Crescent region, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Northern Egypt, parts of Anatolia, that region. So the Western historians and their Indian <laughs> their Indian 2Ds have been saying this for the longest time, that agriculture first emerged there. Well, now lots of new evidences emerged of agriculture having emerged in India way, way before this. The oldest known evidence of agriculture in India, in the Indian subcontinent, is from 17,500 or so years before today, from Sri Lanka. And I say it's the Indian subcontinent because 17,000 years ago, 
there was the ice age in effect and there was no sea between india and sri lanka india and sri lanka were the same landmass sri lanka was geographically and physically part of the indian subcontinent at the time so the oldest evidence of agriculture is from 17 point something years ago in sri lanka and you have lots of other evidence of uh, of agriculture from the ganga yamuna plain region and other parts of india from 12000 11000 years ago 10000 years ago and all that so what dr neeraj rai tweeted i i remember seeing the nature paper it was published in 2020 i don't have it right now i can cannot pull it up i suppose you can all uh, take a look at that and uh, that nature paper is what dr neeraj rai was referring to let me see if i can actually pull that up that paper that was published in nature and that is what dr neeraj rai was referring to uh, i may have it here let me put that on the screen how nice i have it here is the paper was it from 2020 it was published in 2018 early neolithic agriculture and kushan period developments macro botanical evidence from kanispur in kashmir india and this is the paper that uh, dr rai was most likely referring to and all of these pieces of evidence that we are now discovering they demonstrate that agriculture evolved emerged in india before any such thing emerged in the so called fertile crescent agriculture in india predates agriculture everywhere else so this particular tweet that he must have tweeted would have been part of that that overall uh, pattern of discoveries that we are now making yes so that's what it is sound guy abhishek varu says you <laughs> you unclothed some mind shackling facts about that japan and germany are still under us military control occupation do you have similar brain blowing facts mm, brain blowing facts <laughs> regarding israel maldives and italy respectively okay it would be too much to unpack if i go into all three nations so let's talk about italy let's talk about italy i have demonstrated multiple times that japan is under complete us control and massive american military occupation there are more than 130 permanent us military bases on japanese soil i have also demonstrated that germany is similarly under permanent us military occupation what about italia Italy is a wonderful country, isn't it? So, what about Italy? Is Italy also under U.S. military occupation in some way? Indeed, it is. Italy also has numerous military bases that the U.S. has been operating since the end of World War II. And if you know where to look, you will find lists. I'm not going to put it up right now because I have not pulled up the list, and I will leave some of the. research and analysis for you you can do a little bit of homework yes look it up if you are if you are so inclined if you are interested in this matter there are a number of us permanent military bases on italian soil now you know what they portray i think if you see if you look up the wikipedia entry for these individual military bases they will say that these bases are jointly operated by italy and the us and it's completely under the italian control the italians have can can take assume full control anytime they wish to that's what i think wikipedia the wikipedia articles say but the fact is that all of these military bases were established by the us at the end of the second world war and they have been operating these bases ever since 
Italy. So Italy is also just like Japan and Germany under permanent US occupation. Yes. Now let's let's take a look at some other interesting facts, shall we? Let's take a look at another fact. Uh, let me put this article on the screen, which will give you another dimension to the whole issue. What countries have nuclear weapons and what where are they? So as part of this, let's talk about US nuclear weapons outside the US. About half of the roughly 200 US shorter range weapons are believed to be deployed in five NATO countries in Europe, Belgium, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Turkey, although the US does not confirm or deny their specific locations, yeah, and so on and so forth. And this is all aimed at encircling Russia. Yes. Now, do you see Italy figure in this? We are not surprised to see Germany. Germany, we know, is under permanent US military occupation. Yes, the constitution of Germany was created by the Americans, essentially, indirectly. It was all done by the Americans. Italy also has U.S. nuclear weapons on its soil. Tell me something. Will a sovereign nation allow another country to operate military bases on its soil and put nuclear weapons aimed at a third country? It doesn't make any sense. So there is a lack of sovereignty and a loss of sovereignty. So if you are interested, please look up which are the U.S. military bases on Italian soil. When were those military bases opened? How long have the Americans been stationed on these military bases? How long have they been operating the bases? And then a whole interesting news picture will unfold right in front of your eyes. Not just Japan, not just Germany. Italy is also under permanent US military occupation. Right. Somnath says, as you have always said, Aircraft carriers are sinkable, they are vulnerable, they are prone to attacks, more attacks than islands. Okay. Instead of working, instead, instead of using aircraft carriers, working on submarines would be a better solution. My question is: how about carriers that can submerge under the ocean to avoid the enemy and are functional to launch drones or land helicopters? Will that design be a valuable add for us? You know. The idea of submersible aircraft carriers crops up from time to time. Yeah. And it's actually been done in the past. During World War II, the Japanese operated at least a couple of submarine aircraft carriers. And they did not just have helicopters. They had those floating planes, you know, planes that can land on sea and take off from sea. They have... Uh, skis instead of wheels, uh, seaplanes they're called, right? So each of these submarine aircraft carriers operated, operated by the Japanese had the capacity to, to hold at least two of those planes. So that concept has been tried and tested. It actually works. At least one of these submarine aircraft carriers was surrendered to the US at the end of World War II. So it's been done. Now, what about the 21st century? So typically when you talk about aircraft carriers, you're talking about ships that can launch fighter planes. The Indian aircraft carriers have a capacity of about 30 or so fighter planes. The American aircraft carriers have a capacity of 80 plus fighter aircraft, maybe 80 plus, maybe even 90 plus. Yeah, I don't remember the exact, exact number. You can look it up if you want. 
now when it comes to helicopters and drones it's it's a significant climb down of capacity capability the entire point of an aircraft carrier is power projection massive power projection that's the whole point it's intimidation more than actual warfare you send an aircraft carrier near a nation it it if that nation is not a superpower it's going to scare that nation it's going to intimidate that nation that's what the americans and the british tried in 1971 when they sent one aircraft carrier each into the bay of bengal yeah so that's the whole point uh now in warfare you want planes to be able to take off and land take off and land do multiple sorties from an aircraft carrier go drop your weapons load come back land refuel then get out again with new weapons if your aircraft carrier is under the water your plane will not be able to land multiple times and do multiple sorties without exposing the location of your submersible aircraft carrier so that kind of defeats the purpose of a submersible aircraft carrier so when it comes to proper big uh 100 uh, you know the 90 plus aircraft aircraft carriers it's hard to imagine or hard to conceptualize making that sort of uh ship a submersible or submarine ship yeah uh when it comes to drones or helicopters it can still be done i'm sure but nobody is taking that seriously or or considering that for a variety of reasons mainly because once you once you surface you are exposing your position and then you are vulnerable to attack so what is now the focus is now on underwater drones so you know autonomous submersible vehicles autonomous submarine submarines and maybe with that you may have some kind of drone aerial drone or something like that that could be paired so i am sure there are multiple uh, research and development programs that are underway but as far as i know for the reasons that i just outlined nobody is considering the the submarine aircraft carrier very seriously even though the the idea does crop up from time to time yeah all right let's take some audience questions somebody is saying no audience questions all right let's take a few audience questions maybe two three all right if you have any interesting questions please ask me now all right all right let's see uh if there is any interesting no audience questions go ahead ask me questions go on ah yes yes of course q had built a submersible aircraft carrier in james one movie which movie was that was it a roger moore movie i kind of remember as a kid watching an aircraft uh, watching a james one movie with submarines and things like that there was a movie in space as well moonraker Roger Moore was there. Yeah. <laughs> so that idea has always been around, isn't it? Sarvesh says is academic excellence everything? No, excellence is in life is everything. Your academic whatever you your academic performance is not a, a real is not a reliable indicator of your performance as an adult after you're out of your schooling and education system. There are people who do terribly in academics who and who are brilliant entrepreneurs let me give you an example gary vaynerchuk gary vaynerchuk i believe is dyslexic or something he is not great at reading and he did not uh, perform well at all in academics and yet he has built i think a billion dollar plus plus company or or a group of companies and he is very active on social media and all that he is he's a, he's a brilliant entrepreneur very successful very successful entrepreneur 
and he was not academically excellent look at uh, albert einstein he did not do well in academics but he is one of the greatest uh, scientists of all time maybe the greatest scientist of the 20th century look at shrinivas ramanujan terrible in academics but one of the greatest greatest mathematical geniuses in the past 1000 years yeah top 3 top 5 so academic excellence is not everything if you are not doing well academically it doesn't mean you should be disheartened it doesn't mean that you will do poorly in life maybe you will do better in life than most of your peers who are getting first rank or whatever it is right so that is how it is so don't i i personally don't place any emphasis on what your academic performance has been like your aptitude your eagerness to learn your your attitude towards life and your and and what really matters is that you are always willing to learn something new and to work hard talent versus hard work academic excellence versus hard work hard work will always trump all these factors all right okay let's take maybe one more question uh what do we have uh let me see if there is any interesting other question does turkey have more geopolitical influence than india uh in the past i am sure turkey did have more geopolitical influence because of the leftover halo effect of the ottoman empire which controlled massive parts of europe in asia but also after world war Two, because it stayed neutral in World War Two, it did not take sides, and then it it essentially became a client state or a vassal state of the U.S. and that's why and it became a member of NATO because of all these activities and all these geopolitical choices that it made. It acquired a significant geopolitical influence. It was allowed to prosper by the U.S. It was allowed to capture Northern Cyprus. It was. It is currently being being allowed to to. you know occupy parts of syria and so on so because it is on the good side of nato mostly and on the good side of the us it has a certain amount of geopolitical influence it has mr erdogan has caliph like ambitions again he wants to be the he wants to revive the ottoman empire essentially and become the next sultan and so on but turkey has a limited size yeah unless they go full conquest like the like the past they will be able to not go beyond a certain level India on the other hand has unlimited potential. India overlooks the Indian Ocean region, the entire massive piece of real estate, global real estate. And India has a young, vibrant, incredibly talented population, incredible resources. This sky is the limit for India. So going forward India's graph is rising. I don't I don't know how far Turkey's graph will rise. It is closely related to the to the western graph. If the US keeps declining, the Turks will have to make choices maybe align with china maybe with russia they're trying to align they they've been supporting pakistan for the longest time and so on so i think as of 2022 india already most likely has more geopolitical influence and it is only going to keep rising militarily india is still you know not biding india is still biding its time and not showing any real capabilities which i think is a good it's a good strategy good Okay, one last question. Who will get it? Mass idiocracy says, "Who cares about Turkey? You have to care about every single 
player in geopolitics you may like them you may dislike them that's a whole different thing but if you underestimate something somebody that may be the last thing you will do never underestimate anybody right what else i uh, let me take one more then uh shaheen says who was gajamada gajamada was a was a general and a prime minister of the majapahit empire in indonesia which was the golden period of Indo- of indonesia's history um and there's a whole story and history associated with that there was the pinnacle of indonesian history the cultural uh, the cultural zenith of indonesia which is when indonesia was a hindu empire uh, and so on yeah so that, that's who gajah mada was he was the greatest leader that their greatest general and prime minister of the time he was not the king but he was the most powerful man in the empire gajah mada all right my dear friends this is the end of today's episode always always great fun talking to you all always great to have all these wonderful questions and we shall repeat this process next week in episode 136 onwards going forward all right until then take care and i will see you very soon as always take care bye bye